We're at the end of the Bible course, guys. Cora, <laughs> just, just take him outside a minute. <laughs> Who's found this an amazing course has really helped them to just get that overall picture of what, what the big story of the Bible is? Well, officially, this week's title is Revelation and Review. Now, those of you who recall secondary school days, and we have some youth, when your teachers say you're doing a review, they actually mean they're going to test you on it, don't they? Yeah, okay. So you'll be pleased to know it's review week, guys. So before we get into Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we're going to have a little review. Now, if you were wise, you chose where you sat very carefully this morning because some of you will have noticed that some of the books are missing. And there are some books underneath chairs. Now, this is the point at which you have to make a decision in good conscience, people. You check under your chair or the chairs around you and see if there is a book. If you don't want to be the one who has to deal with that book, then you pass it to another willing victim on your row. And you keep hold of it until we need it. Okay? Right. (laughs) Judy Harper, I saw that pass. Okay. (laughs) So, (laughs) so there's no books left on chairs. Good, good. Okay. And this is where I've got to try and remember which ones we've put out there and what comes. So, first of all, we began the story here, and we have a missing book for here. Who's got the nice, easy one? Contents, yes, the contents page. Well done. A round of applause for Mike. We have Genesis, the book of Genesis, the story of the creation of the world, how God made the world, and God made it really, really good. The climax of his creation was making mankind. There's people throwing, Andrew Parker, take that book back. It's just like secondary school, guys, isn't it? Honestly. God made the world. He made it good. But God's people didn't obey him. They messed up. And so the world was broken. The world now had evil in it. The story went along, and they ended up going into Egypt, down in Egypt with Joseph. But thankfully... They did come back up of, out of Egypt. God released his people through Moses going to Pharaoh saying, let my people go. And that happened in the book of... Yay! Up you come, David. Ooh, I'm standing too near to the speaker. The book of Exodus. So God, thank you, David. God set his people free from slavery in Egypt They came out, and as they wandered through the desert for somewhat longer than was really necessary, given how far they had to travel, (laughs) God gave them the law, his guidance on how they should live. Okay. So they come back out of Egypt to this promised land, the book of Joshua. They come into this promised land where God said to them, live my way, I will be your God. I will care for you. It's all going to be good. They don't have a king yet. And so instead of kings, they have judges. And what we see in the time of the judges is this cycle that goes, yeah, on, doesn't really matter. It goes round and round. So the people are following God, but then they start to drift away. They forget 
that they were supposed to follow all of this guidance that God gave them back here. They don't live God's way. And then, because they're not living God's way, things start to go wrong. Other nations start coming at them. And so they pray, and God raises up a judge who sorts them out, gets them back to worshipping God, helps them to defeat their enemy, and then everything's lovely until that judge dies. And then they all start disobeying God again. And we go round and round in a cycle. And at the end of the time of the judges, Israel says, we want a... Which leads us rather nicely to the book of... One or two kings. Come on, Daniel, you're going to come put that one up for us? The time of the kings. Bonus points for the first king's name? Saul. Well done, Saul. Saul. But he didn't thank you, Daniel. Well done. Good job. So the kings. Saul, followed by David, thought of as the greatest king. And the kings lead the nation of Israel. But there's a little bit of disagreement going on. And so at this point here, the nation split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And this is where we came into the time of the prophets. I've got to check which book I actually removed at this point, because I can't remember. <laughs> oh, no, we've missed one. We've missed one. During the time of the kings, when there was still one nation, we had somebody very wise called Solomon, which leads us nicely onto these books down here, which are the wisdom books. And there's one of those missing. Who's got a wisdom book? Those wise words. Not Isaiah, no. Proverbs, well done. The wise sayings. Men- <laughs> it, it helps, so it helps. Or it's paraphrased as two eggs on my plate. <laughs> yeah, D- don't look inside these books. It's a bit random. <laughs> it's a bit random. Okay, so the kingdom splits. We have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the time of the prophets. So the prophets here are bringing God's word to the people, reminding them to live God's way, which they keep forgetting to do. And one of the prophets is sent to Nineveh to tell them about God's way. And that prophet was... Where is he? Where's Jonah? He's been swallowed by a whale. Someone's lost him. Jonah, yay! No, you cannot throw it. I will. We will pass gently. Okay, and Jonah's up there. Okay, so we've got Jonah. He's been swallowed by a whale, but he's been spat out, and he's back here. Not yet, not yet, Kathy. Wait for your moment. Okay, so we had Jonah, and we've got somewhere here. We have got another major prophet. I think he's over here, actually, yes. After this northern kingdom has died out, we've got the southern kingdom and the other big prophet who wrote rather a lot, it seems. Isaiah, yay! The prophet Isaiah, well done. Okay. Then, northern kingdom died out. Southern kingdom was still going, but eventually they kept not following God's way. And so they were taken over and found themselves being taken into exile up north, which is told about in the book of... I can't see which book it is yet, so I don't know if he's right or not. 
He's covering it with his hand. Is it going to be the right book? Or... Daniel, yay! Thank you. Up there, Daniel. The book of Daniel. Daniel, one of God's people living in exile in the nation of Babylon. Living God's way, even though he was in a place that was not godly. Eventually, Babylon is defeated. I think it's the Assyrians, the Medo-Persians, or one of them that comes in at that point. And eventually, God's people are allowed to return back to Jerusalem, where they rebuild the walls and they rebuild the temple, which we find in the book of Nehemiah. Yay! Thank you, Kathy. So Nehemiah tells about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Thank you. And then we have a gap, a long gap, before we start the New Testament. And what happens at the start of the New Testament? The birth of Jesus. And we're missing one of the Gospels. Who's got a Gospel? Yay! And comes in the Gospel of John. So the four Gospels that tell the story of the life of Jesus, Jesus fully human but fully God, and how he dies but then he rises again. What comes next? Acts. Who's got Acts? The early church. So Jesus has died, he's risen again, and we see the beginning of the church powered by the Holy Spirit, which Tony told us about last week. During this time, the apostles are writing their letters to the church, and we've got all these letters with instructions and encouragement on how to live as the church. And somebody should have one of the letters? Romans? Have we got a Roman somewhere? Yeah. How very appropriate. How very appropriate. Right, we'll put the Romans there. Okay. So, back at the beginning, it was all perfect. God's people have been on this journey up and down, round and round. Jesus has come. Jesus has paid the sacrifice. He has won that victory to restore people to him. He has ascended to heaven. He has sent the Holy Spirit to empower people to live God's way. But, in case you haven't noticed, we're here right now. Is it back as it was meant to be in the beginning? Are you living in Eden right now, people? No. It's not quite there yet. And this is where the book of Revelation comes in. So who's got the book of Revelation? Anybody? Who's got Revelation? (laughs) Here it comes, the book of Revelation. What should I say? The stories of the good guys winning. Ah. (laughs) The book of Revelation. Phew. We've made it. Give yourselves a little round of applause. You passed the test. Well done. So, as I said, we're at that point there, just before the end of the story. Jesus has come. He's proclaimed the good news. He's won that victory for us. The Holy Spirit has come and empowered us. And yet the world is still broken. 
that's where we're sitting right now. And so the book of Revelation, the illustration that the Bible course uses, is that it's a bit like a little door. Do you like my little door? Isn't that cute? It's, it's a little fairy door. Not, not that we believe in fairies or, or anything like that, just to be clear. My, my mummy got me this for Christmas, and I've had to paint it. Isn't it cute? But anyway, that aside, <laughs> it's, it's like a little door. The book of Revelation is giving us a glimpse into the spiritual world and into what is to come. It's giving us a little glimpse of what's happening in the spiritual realm right now and what's to come. That glimpse into eternity. It's giving us that opportunity to see. So I'm going to put my little door ajar there so that we can have that little glimpse into eternity. Now, what do we see as we glimpse through that door? John is given this vision. And let's hear the first thing that he sees. Is it going to work? Here we go. So John says what he sees. I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So the first thing I want us to take from this, as we think about where we are, the world's still broken, but God is on the throne. The Lamb, Jesus, is there on the throne. Whatever we see in the world around us right now, whatever's going on in our lives, Jesus is on the throne. When you open that little door and glimpse into eternity, the victory is won. He is on the throne. That's what's happening in the spiritual realm. But then some of the stuff that we read in Revelation, to be frank, gets a little bit weird. Who's tried reading Revelation before now? Yeah. Who's read it and gone, okay, and then close the book again? Because it's all a bit weird. So Revelation is, is probably one of the hardest books in the Bible to interpret and understand what it's getting at. It, it's a, one that people debate a lot. So I thought, rather than trying to explain how to understand it to you myself, I'd get my daughter to do it, and then she can do the difficult bit. Yeah, sound like a good idea? So... Conveniently, a year or so back, Clara did the book of Revelation with the youth. Brave woman. So they've had a little bit of a grounding in it. So Kezia is going to come up and just do a little bit explaining to us how we should read the book of Revelation. Have we got the other mic there, Tony? Be kind to her. (laughs) Um, So the book of Revelation is made up of three literary types, apocalypse, prophecy, and letter. We have already come across prophetic literature and letters. However, Revelation is unique in that it also has apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is concerned about coming judgment and salvation and looks forward to the time when God will bring an end to history. It is presented in the form of visions and dreams, in this case those of John. Um, The images in apocalyptic literature are often forms of fantasy rather than reality. For example, in Revelation 13, 
It says, And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast, the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a, mouth, of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. However, it is unlikely <laughs> that there will actually be a beast with ten horns and seven heads. Another aspect of apocalyptic literature is that the language used is often cryptic and symbolic. For example, in this description, there are specific numbers, such as the beast has ten heads, ten horns. Um, the number ten symbolizes total, whereas horns symbolize power. Therefore, ten horns means total power. Other numbers have symbolic meanings too. The number three represents perfection or holiness, for example, the Trinity. The number seven represents complete perfection, for example, the seven days of creation. The number six is one less than seven, which means that it represents imperfection or evil because it is trying to be seven, but it isn't. Later on in Revelation, it says... Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. The number 666 is not not only represents evil, but the number 6 is repeated three times, which shows how it's trying to be holy and perfect, but it's not, just like how the devil tries to trick us. And lastly... The number 12 implies governmental perfection and is often associated with the people of God. For example, in the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes of Israel, and in the New Testament, there were 12 disciples. Thank you. Okay, so we're all now experts on the book of Revelation. That's enough information to get you going with that. So... There's an awful lot of symbolism. There's an awful lot of debate over the details of what's going to happen when. What's important about this book? What's the real message we need to take? People can get really into Revelation and get into the whole thing of, right, well, what what does this beast represent? What does that beast represent? And the various trials and tribulations that are coming and who's going to be affected by them and when's it going to happen? What's the key message that we need to draw out of it? Well, yeah, Jesus is coming certainly is a key one. Jesus is already on the throne. We've already got that one. He's on the throne. The next key message that comes through it is out with the old. Remember we talked about some key symbolism in the book of Revelation. Now, one of the key symbols we see in it is this picture of Babylon. Babylon gets talked about a lot. There's a whole chapter in Revelation 18, and I'll read you just a little bit of it here, that talks about Babylon. And it says of Babylon, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Now, the thing is, we know it can't be talking about the real Babylon, because if this is talking about something that's coming in the future, Babylon already came to ruin quite some time ago. In fact, it happened. Where's it gone? Where's he gone? 
is up here. There we go, up here. It happened here in the book of Daniel. We have the account of it. But it's what Daniel, what Daniel, what Babylon represents that it's talking about. Babylon is a symbol. Now, if we actually trace even further back, do you remember when we talked right near the beginning about the Tower of Babel? Right at the beginning. And what that was representing was human pride, human ambition, where they said, we're going to build our tower right up to the heavens. Don't need God. We're just going to get ourselves there. And the irony of it, where it said in the text, the Lord had to come down to see their really tall tower that the people were building. So we had the Tower of Babel, and then we had Babylon. So in the book of Daniel, it tells us how the Babylonian king has this writing appear on the wall at one of his parties that says, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parsa. Hang on, I need it on my sheet here, so I tell you the right thing. One moment. Oh, sorry, Perez. And he's like, what does this mean? And Daniel comes and interprets it and tells him, Mene means God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that very night, King Belshazzar is killed and the Medo-Persians took over. And so Babylon today looks a bit like this, in ruins. You can see a little bit at the side there where they've tried to start to rebuild some stuff, but it's in ruins. Overnight, the massive Babylonian, Babylonian empire, which was this great power, crumbled and was taken over. And so when Revelation talks about Babylon, and it says, woe to you, great city, in one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. It's looking back at the Tower of Babel, at Babylon, and how they, humankind's great achievements, humankind's greatest powers, have crumbled to nothing, and saying, that's what's going to happen to human power, to everything that has set itself up against God, that has set itself up to be God. Those things that claim to have that power, to have that strength, will just crumble like Babylon did. Because none of them can be like God. So the old way where the human powers rule will come to an end. What comes in its place? Out with the old, in with the new. This is my favourite bit. This is what's to come. Creation is to be made new. In Revelation 21, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. A new heaven and a new earth. Now, you may remember back early in the story, we had the story of Noah, remember, in the flood, where there was 
a new start. It wasn't a complete new world, though. It was a washing clean. And then it was still going wrong. Noah's descendants still messed up. This isn't a washing clean. This is a complete new heaven and new earth. Restored to the state it was in Eden, to how it was at the very beginning. And in that new heaven and new earth, John tells us that he sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Remember back at the very beginning, where was God at the very beginning in that story of the creation? In the garden, walking alongside with the people. But because they turned away from him, They became separate from God. They were no longer walking alongside him. And all through the story, it's traced that connection between the people and God. During the Exodus, when they came out of Egypt and they were wandering through the desert, where did we see God there? Yeah, and so we, we had the cloud, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, representing God's presence leading them. And then when they camped, it was in that tabernacle, the tent, where you had the tent and then you had the fence around it and people couldn't come near. The tent became, during the time of the kings, the temple. Do you remember when we looked at the temple and how you had those sort of, those gradings almost of, Who's allowed this close? Who's allowed into this bit? Who's allowed into that bit? And only this person is allowed this close. Only the high priest once a year could come into the most holy place. In the New Testament, Jesus, God, came and lived among men. And after he had died and then risen again and ascended to heaven, God the Holy Spirit became available to all of us to live in us. But it's going to go one step further in this new heaven and new earth where God will live with his people like it was in Eden, walking along side by side. Fully God will be there with us, restored to how it was made in the beginning. And in this perfect creation, it says he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Right now, we're with the Holy Spirit. Jesus has won the victory, but there's still death. There's still crying. There's still pain. The world is still broken. But when Jesus comes back at the end of time, we will be in that new heaven and new earth where there will be no more crying, no more pain. Can you imagine what that's going to be like?
So we've had out with the old, in with the new, the new creation, restored to being very good, close with God. But there's another lovely picture that comes through in this, a picture of a tree. I I had to raid the house to find you a tree. This one happens to have a swing on it. The trees in the Bible don't have swings on them, though, okay? Although I'm sure you, you could put one on, should you so wish. So, the tree first appeared in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life. If you remember, Adam and Eve had taken the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and it had brought evil into the world. So the reason God says that they have to leave the garden is because they might eat of the tree of life. Once evil has come in, it cuts them off from the tree of life. The passage, it's in um, Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24, says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So they're cut off from that tree of life. Now, interestingly, there's another reference to a tree pops up. When the cross that Jesus died on is talked about, particularly in the book of Acts, there's this quirky little thing that the word they use for cross actually means something made of wood and would actually also be used to say the bough of a tree. So there's a sense in which Jesus' death, you might have heard it referred to as he died on a tree. We've had the tree of life. We have the tree on on which Jesus, the giver of life, is crucified and dies. But then in Revelation... We have this description of in this new heaven, this new earth, the new city, Jerusalem. It says, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And I'll read a little more to you. No longer will there be any curse The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The tree of life that we've been cut off from ever since Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, is going to be there. Right in the middle of the new creation. You can see it through the door. If you peek through, you can get a little glimpse of it. The tree of life. 
And what's so beautiful about it, it says it's going to bear 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. What did the number 12 represent? This is your mini test. Were you listening earlier? What does the number 12 represent? Governmental perfection and, in particular, God's people. Okay? The 12 tribes of Israel, God's people. So this tree of life with 12 crops of fruit on it, enough for all God's people. That life is going to rule over us all. That will be our rule, the rule of life that Jesus brings with enough for everyone. Every person can be counted in on that. So we've got this picture of what's what's happening in the spiritual realm and what is to come. One day, we're going to see this new creation. Jesus is going to return and we're going to be with God again in that perfect place. But what does it mean for us? When we read the Bible, they said earlier in this course, this idea that we should come with these three questions. What, so what, and now what? What being, what did this passage mean to the people who first read it? At the time it was being written, in their language, in their context, what did it mean? And Kezia's explained a bit of that, so that the numbers to those people, they would have known what those numbers meant, what that symbolism meant with the different things. So we understand from what we've looked at today, that yes, it's talking about how the rule of mankind, human pride, human ambition that sets itself up against God will fall. We've looked at that picture of the new heaven and the new earth, that everything will be restored to being good, that God's provision will be enough for everyone, that life will be the rule over us all. Now what? We've peeked through that door. Looks good, doesn't it? Yeah? Nice view through the door. Yeah? Some of you are just like, "Mm, yeah, whatever. It's a good view. But now what? What does that mean for us now? Is there a way that we need to respond to this? Or do we just sit back and say, oh, nice view. Lovely. One day it's all going to be perfect and admire the view. I would suggest to you that alongside admiring that view, there is a call on us. Jesus taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer, didn't he? Let's say it again now to remind ourselves the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who lead us against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Every time you pray that, 
the first thing you ask God in that, after you've said that praise of who God is, what's the first thing that you ask? Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. When we open that door and glimpse into the future, we see God's kingdom, don't we? Yeah? But Jesus tells us to pray, your kingdom come. Now, I don't think he would ask us to pray that unless we had something to do with seeing that happen. If he, if it was just a case of us sitting back and, yeah, his kingdom's going to come when Jesus returns, he wouldn't be asking us to pray it, would he? Because what's the point in us praying it then? We have a call to see that kingdom coming. One day it will come in its fullness, but right now, through the power of the Spirit, we can bring glimpses of that kingdom to earth. Whether that's just opening that door a little peek so that others can see the hope of what is to come, or whether that's bringing some of that kingdom rule and reign to earth now. Because Jesus is on the throne now. And through our prayer, we can bring some of what it says, where it says there will be no more crying, no more pain. We can pray some of that to earth now. We won't see it in its fullness until Jesus comes again, but we can bring glimpses of it. And so that's our call for now. That's how we can respond to what we see in the book of Revelation, looking to the future, but calling that kingdom to earth now, living our lives now in that kingdom. And so as we finish, I want to invite us to take a moment and ponder where do we want to call your kingdom come now? Maybe it's being a carrier of hope to others to help them see, to just hold that door ajar for them to say, look, Jesus is on the throne. This is what's coming. Maybe there's specific areas where we want to see that kingdom rule and reign coming now in our lives. And we need to pray into that. So as we close, it it is just about time. Perhaps we could pray the Lord's Prayer again. But as we pray it together, let's have that little door ajar as we pray, your kingdom come, and all those other things that are about God's kingdom coming. Let's call that kingdom to earth as we pray. Let's pray together then. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Yeah, Father God, we make that declaration over our lives. Yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory for eternity. That means in the future, but it also means now. 
We know, Lord Jesus, that you are sitting on the throne. You have won the victory. And Lord, our our hearts yearn for what is to come, for the fullness of your kingdom, where that tree of life will be standing either side of the river that flows, where your life will be there for everyone. Father, would you bless us with glimpses of that in our lives now? Would you bring your kingdom rule and reign into our lives today? Amen. Amen. Amen.